It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. This is the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Podcast. A nation of normality in a negative world. With your host, Joe Alton, MD, and Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. ARMP of doomandbloom.net, the reader's choice source for both medical education and an entire line of the best health savings account eligible medical kits for austere settings that you'll find anywhere that you can shake a stick at. In the world. That's right. (laughs) Well, we had a very nice holiday. Yes, you that's played right. you played reindeer nice. games for everybody. Yes, that's right. We always in our family play little games, trivia, ring toss, trivia and, games, right, active games, games right, right, skill right. games. That's right, and everybody gets a little prize if I they won win. A couple of them. You did indeed. You are actually very <laughs> skillful at well, all I this stuff. I was a softball uh, pitcher when I was in I think fourth grade. Absolutely right. Well, if you've listened to the last few shows, or if you've just returned from another galaxy, you may have noticed that we've changed our format. You're going to be hearing more frequent, a little bit shorter shows to get straight to the information you're looking for without a lot of housekeeping up front. And I think that's a good thing, don't you? Yes, get to the point. That's right. Instead of all <laughs> my jibbery-jabbery <laughs> stuff like that that I usually come up with, I'm a little, I'm a little talkative a little like the sound of my own voice. I don't know why. No, you don't. It's old geezer you voice. You always complain about it. I like it. Oh, uh, well, thank you very much. Merry Christmas, by the way. And Merry Christmas to you and thank to you. all of and our listeners everybody. out there. I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday. And we actually had a lot of fun. We did with you, like I said, your reindeer games. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Hey, you know, some of the stuff that you hear on the show is going to be outside the conventional medical wisdom because we are doing this for specific settings, for austere settings when you've been knocked off the grid due to a disaster. We would like to keep our active medical licenses, though, so I have to tell you that... Yes. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. We strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. In other words, don't listen to a darn thing we say. We are just... Or a darn thing we say. That's right. That's right. (laughs) I'm just here in my rocking chair drooling on my shoes. I'll wipe it off for you. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, darling. Thank you. (laughs) So today I'm going to talk about a mosquito-borne illness. What? It's freezing out there. There are no mosquitoes anywhere to be seen. Well, guess what? Down here in South Florida, we get outbreaks of tropical infections even in wintertime. A while ago, I wrote about a mosquito-borne infection that strikes warm weather regions called dengue fever. And at that time, I reported that places as far apart from each other as Singapore, Nicaragua, and Bangladesh had reported dengue outbreaks, not just since the beginning of the year, but actually on the same day. And this distribution between you and I meets the WHO the World Health Organization, who? The World Organization. Yeah, that's so World funny. Health or- Health Organization definition of pandemic. 
According to them, the pandemic phase is characterized by community-level outbreaks in different regions, and I don't think that there are regions as different as Singapore and Asia and Bangladesh, far and just around India and the island, the island, the country of Nicaragua. Yes. Okay, those are pretty far apart. Absolutely. Well, this week, the Florida Department of Health in Miami issued an alert after two local residents came down with dengue fever symptoms. That brings the total to 14 in the area for 2019. These cases were not thought to be contracted in other countries, but locally from local mosquitoes in the South Florida area. Gee, what a wonderful thought, honey. That is a terrible thought. I know, because we are bordering on Miami. Well, the implication is that local mosquitoes in the area are a reservoir for the disease, and certainly they're probably right in our area at as we speak, really. Well, quick, get out the mosquito spray. <laughs> there you go. Hurry. Now, all this differs from, let's say, the Ebola virus in 2014. With Ebola, the only U.S. infections occurred from exposure to a Liberian citizen who arrived in the U.S. after being infected in West Africa. All right, well, back to dengue fever, though. Dengue fever is an infection caused by a virus transmitted to humans, as I said, by mosquitoes. If you live between latitude 35 degrees north and 35 degrees south, and lower than about 3,000 feet elevation, you are eligible to get this infection. Um, estimated about, gosh, 400 million people get infected with dengue virus every year, and luckily for the grand majority, they don't even know they have it, but it does result in sickness for close to 100 million. That's a lot of folks. That's incredible. Now, rates of dengue infection are thought to have increased greatly since 1960 due to encroaching civilization, population growth in warmer regions, maybe climate change. I'm sure a lot of people would blame that as well. As a resident of South Florida, I believe that it's the widespread introduction of residential air conditioning, that technology, around the time of this increase, 1960, that might have precipitated the explosion in potential victims. As a lot of people, I mean, in 1960, there weren't a lot of folks down here in Miami area, but now the place is, well, the place is loading. Booming. Booming. That's right. I will say one thing, though. The air conditioning at least brought people a little safer from the mosquitoes. That's true, because they could be inside. And, uh, and, with the and, door shut, yeah. Right, exactly. So the safety increased for the bites. However, it increased the population, which so, gave the mosquitoes more of a chance of having... Sure, number of potential victims. Say, yeah, yeah, victims. But they have to get it from a person first, which you're going to explain. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, let's say, how do you recognize? I want people to be able to recognize dengue fever when they see it. There are various symptoms. There's a rash. It usually is on the trunk, but it can be all over. Uh, there are various symptoms uh, that are other. Uh, by the way, there are various viruses that give dengue fever. Actually, four different viruses that are related that cause dengue fever. The symptoms, though, are going to be similar. So you have that rash, you have a high fever up to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, sudden onset, um, severe headaches, pain behind the eyes, severe joint, bone, and muscle pain, fatigue, nausea and vomiting, and all sorts of stuff. The rash, if it occurs, will happen about several days, I guess four, four to seven days after you start getting sick, mm-hmm. and interestingly enough, that's also the incubation period. In other words, the time from your the actual mosquito bite to the actual time you feel symptoms is four to seven days. Sometimes the worst part of this sickness is the orthopedic symptoms, the 
pain that you get in your muscles, your joints, your bones. Uh, as a matter of fact, sometimes they're so painful that dengue has been called, as in, its nickname is breakbone fever. Thank. I think a lot of people may have had that feeling when they had a severe problem with the flu. If anyone's experienced the first couple of days of the flu when it first comes on and you feel like you can't even walk to the bathroom, I think what happens with these patients is they have that feeling, but for a long time. It's debilitating in some folks. Oh yeah, it can be can be terrible. Now, the difference between influenza and uh, break bone fever is I think the rash is going to be the most obvious thing. If several days into your flu, you've developed a rash that's pretty obvious, mm-hmm. well, then you might consider possibly dengue fever as the cause. Now, thankfully, most people resolve their symptoms in one or two weeks, and they're immune to the virus after that, at least a specific strain to contract. Remember, I said there are four, four of them. If someone with a history of dengue fever does get sick again, it's likely going to be because they had a different strain that they were infected with. And sadly, the second dengue infection is usually worse than the first, because I guess you have your antibodies kicking into high gear because you've been exposed to it before. Uh, Now, of course... Most people do recover fully, but the small minority actually go on to develop a life-threatening version of the disease called dengue hemorrhagic fever. Complications will include things like bleeding from the nose and gums, blood and lymphatic vessel damage, and liver enlargement. These are some pretty terrible things that can happen to you, from especially considering the disease is asymptomatic in about three-quarters of people. Now, this disease can progress to even something worse than that called dengue shock syndrome, where you start having massive bleeding, organ failure, circulatory collapse. Well, if you had to compare it to another disease, I would think of end-stage Ebola. So what's the cure for dengue fever? Well, guess what? There is absolutely no cure for dengue fever. It is a virus, so antibiotics don't do a thing for it, and we don't have an antiviral medicine like we have Tamiflu, for example, that does work well against the influenza virus. Right, at least it helps you get better faster. That's right. So treatment is what we call asymptomatic or is symptomatic treatment. That means you treat symptoms like fever, for example, with acetaminophen, Tylenol. If the person is dehydrated, which is a very common thing to see with this, you would give them oral hydration uh, with aches and pains and things like that. You would enforce bed rest. There is a vaccine that was approved by the FDA just this year but only is given to a certain subgroup of patients, really not for the general population as well. And so I think that since there's no cure, the best strategy is what? Prevention, right? Actually, that's the best strategy for just about any injury or illness, I would think. So let's talk a little bit about dengue fever prevention. If you live in an area where the Aedes aegypti mosquito, the usual culprit, makes its home, you can best protect yourself with a few precautions. One is use DEET, D-E-E-T, or other mosquito repellent regularly, even indoors in some areas. When you're outdoors, you should wear long sleeve shirts and long pants, even if it's warm. And don't forget to tuck the cuffs of those pants into your socks. I know you may think that looks a little funny, but (laughs) I'd rather (laughs) look a little funny than feel a little funny. Absolutely, for a long time. (laughs) That's right. Uh, If 
uh, you're indoors and have air conditioning, keep the windows and doors shut. If you don't have air conditioning, you got to have mosquito net netting or at least a good set of door and window screens. That's very, very important. Another strategy to prevent the mosquito population from getting too big in your area, too numerous in your area, is you eliminate standing water in the vicinity whenever you possibly can. You look around for junk like tin cans, flower pots, old tires that could serve as breeding grounds. Some people say that these guys can breed in a bottle cap. Bird baths, that's another culprit too, another definite hot spot. And your pet's water dish, if it's outside, may also contain mosquito larvae. So take a good look at that and make sure that you see what's going on. Now, clothing can be sprayed with something called permethrin, 0.5%. That is an insecticide. So it's something that shouldn't be on your skin, but can be on your clothes. Permethrin um, bonds to fabric and can be used not only on your clothes, but also can be uh, sprayed or soaked in uh, tents and hammocks. It's most commonly used to prevent Lyme disease or Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever by killing ticks, but there's no reason it wouldn't work on mosquitoes and any other insects that land on you wanting to cause trouble. There are two ways to apply permethrin. You can spray it or you can soak it. Spraying your clothes or gear is a very convenient way to treat them with permethrin, if, uh, if you have a limited amount of our items at least. Soaking your clothes in permethrin is a second way to treat clothing and outdoor gear and can be very useful when you have bulky or large items, say tents, that you need to treat. And one thing that's very important about the advice I'm giving you is before you begin, make sure you read the instructions. Permethrin lasts for a while. I mean, it actually lasts more than one washing when it comes to clothes, but it does have to be reapplied periodically to maintain its effect. You might want to know how long it lasts. Well, both methods, spraying and soaking, remain effective for about six weeks or six washings, as a matter of fact. So that's actually pretty good. Yes. Uh, the problem is sunlight breaks down permethrin, so don't hang your clothes out in the sun to dry. I think that's one thing that's important. You can prolong the effectiveness also by storing gear uh, in black plastic bags so okay. they don't get exposed to light. Or you can hand wash them uh, because... Hand washing is better. Th hand washing is better than washing machines because the agitation in washing machines can actually accelerate the decay in the effect of the permethrin. There's hearsay evidence that soaking your clothes with permethrin instead of spraying actually prolongs the effectiveness even more. But there isn't any hard scientific data that supports that, at least at this point. It's just common sense that soaking penetrates both the inside and outside of a garment. If I'm spraying a garment, it just covers the outside. If an insect avoids the outside and makes it into your skin, well, you know what? If you soak it, there's still a good chance it'll be killed because it's going to be against the inside of your clothing. Right. And so that's something that may be a way that you tilts the, uh, your, my opinion towards maybe you should be soaking these things rather than just spraying. If you want a longer-lasting treatment that lasts up to, up to 70 washings, you can send your clothing to a company called Insect Shield, which has developed a proprietary process for permethrin application that seems to last longer than anything you can do at home. I have no idea what they do, but you can check it out at insectshield.com or go to outdoor stores that might carry these items. Okay, so you're the do-it-yourself guy. Let's say... 
you want to do this yourself. Okay, what you can do, uh, you can soak items in a premixed 0.5% permethrin solution. Sawyer actually sells it. Or you might consider buying a more highly concentrated permethrin solution like Martin's 10% permethrin and dilute it down to the recommended 0.5% solution that would be used for treating fabrics used by humans. Concentrated permethrin solutions are also available in feed and hardware stores. That's why I'm saying for humans. There you go. Okay, so uh, if you don't dilute it down enough, you can get in big trouble. you got to get it down to 0.5%. So how do you do that? Well, if you use a 10% permethrin concentrate, you want to dilute it with 19 parts water and one part of that 10% concentrate to produce the 0.5% permethrin solution forget to shake it up really really well so that you can mix it now while you can dip your clothes in a large bucket of the 0.5 percent permethrin solution you could bag them individually in one gallon freezer bags using a smaller quantity of the solution into each bag this eliminates having a large amount of leftover permethrin that's complicated to safely dispose of or store now you want to pour enough permethrin solution to soak each item and then let it sit for a few hours so that it fully soaks the material. Sawyer, for example, recommends three ounces of 0.5% permethrin solution per garment, but you can add more if it's needed to soak the item as long as it's diluted to the same 0.5% concentration. Uh, You massage the liquid into the garment and then you let it sit for a few hours to fully soak through all the layers of the clothing before pulling it out of the bag and you hang it up to dry in the shade, not in sunlight, in the shade. Once it's dry, the permethrin treated clothing is ready to wear. There's no need to wash them or dry them in a dryer, for example, before use. Doing so is just gonna break down the permethrin that's bonded to the fabric. Of course, it would be very foolhardy not to wear protective gloves during this procedure. And certainly you wanna keep this solution at any strength away from animals, from your food, from water supplies. Use it only in a shady, well-ventilated outdoor area. Sensitive individuals, by the way, could have a reaction that results in a burning sensation on the skin when their garments become wet after they're treated. Usually they can put the garments on without having any problem that it rains and they start having a burning sensation. If there's any doubt, treat a test garment and wear it in rain to determine whether you suffer from this type of sensitivity. Of course, I just gave you a formula that you could easily misuse or goof up on. So remember what I said at the beginning of the show. These are the rantings of an old geezer, and he doesn't have enough brain cells left to claim any responsibility for injuries caused by a result of your doing anything I say, especially if you don't do exactly what I say. (laughs) So do all this stuff at your own risk, but in austere settings, it may prevent some serious infections. You know, in olden days, epidemics of tropical disease affected various cities in the southern United States. It was very common to see yellow fever, uh, dengue fever, things like that in places like New Orleans or Savannah. These can become problems again in disaster settings. Anything that knocks you off the grid and especially viral infections like dengue fever. I mean, we have antibiotics and if you have a good supply of antibiotics, like I always tell you to have, and discuss, we've discussed that in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. Well, you know, that's good. You've got bacterial diseases and a lot of protozoal diseases covered, but viruses still a problem. You have to do prevention. 
So you got to be sure to not only acquire knowledge about the recognition and treatment of these infectious diseases, but you have to absolutely know the methods that you can use to prevent these things. Absolutely. And it's very important to know what diseases are most likely to affect your region if you were knocked off the grid. If you can do all this stuff, you're going to be more likely to succeed even if everything else fails. Hey, how would you like to experience the joy of helping the elderly? Well, you can help me. I'm elderly by subscribing to our website at doomandbloom.net. You can also go to doomandbloom.com, right? They yes, can do that. that's it would right. Go, it would go to doomandbloom.net. And also by following us on Twitter, at Prepper Show is our handle. YouTube at DR Bones Nurse Amy channel. Facebook at Doom and Bloom's page of our, or, or our survival medicine group. It's called Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. And last but not least, checking out our medical kits and individual supplies at Nurse Amy store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, by the way, if you have a question for the old geezer or the lovely lady, send it to our email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. <laughs> aol.com. <laughs> I told you I, I'm losing it. Well, that's all the time we have for this podcast. We hope you listen to the Survival Medicine Podcast every week, or more, oh, actually more often than every week these days, with me, Joe Alton, MD, and Nurse Amy Alton. We really enjoyed having you with us today. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did.